Well, good morning. It is great to see you. And yes, they do make red pants that long, people have asked. And we had to order them, but we found them. And I was very proud of Nathan for keeping it. Nathan didn't know. He wasn't up on it until I snuck up behind him. So uh, he showed me a lot about he, what he can handle under pressure. So. It was amazing for us to be able to do that for our community, uh, and I, I, we've been guessing it's upwards of a couple of thousand people were in that parking lot with kids. It's an amazing opportunity for us to give, to actually exemplify what's on that screen right there, life-giving generosity. And I, I love the graphic. We're on this journey together, and we're climbing this mountain together, and there are the trails that will take us to the top, and uh, I love seeing, and a lot of the kids are having fun on, with those, those dashes of a trail that are on the floor out in the foyer. Somebody donated those, that material to us, and we had volunteers put it in, and I was walking through there, and just thinking through, we are on a journey. That's what this is about. And I, I left there uh, Friday and headed up to the office and found this book on the desk of one of our staff. It's a, it's a pretty deep, heavy theological book. It's called, it's by Dr. Seuss. Oh, the places you'll go. You know, it's, it's a well-used book, but I, I, I read through it. I hadn't read through it in years since my boys graduated from kindergarten or something. And, uh, and I'm thinking, man, this applies to us as Northland right now. The places, oh, the places we'll go. If you're new here, this is an exciting time. We've started a new season building on four decades of rich ministry legacy. And now we have a new journey about. And we're starting this new chapter. Oh, the places you go. Congratulations, Northland. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. It's opener there in the wide open air. I love that shot. The open expanse of what is possible if we galvanize together, if we submit together, if we believe God together, if we let Him love us together, what can happen? Last night, I was blown away just seeing, as I mentioned, a couple of thousand people gathered in our parking lot figuring out, you know what, this, this group of people cares about this community. It's wide open space, what's in store for us. Now, there'll be temptations to just wait and just sit around and do nothing. And he says, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. And he goes on to say, with banner flip-flapping, once more you'll ride high, ready for anything under the sky. Ready because you're, kind of, you're that kind of guy. And girls, just so you know. Now, it's not going to all be wind at our back and easy. There are going to be issues that come up on this journey. But on and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. So, be your name Bill or Sam or Heather or Bucksbaum, or Bixby, or Bray, or Mordecai, Aliva, and Alan O'Shea, you're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, Northland. So get on your way. Get going. I appreciate Dr. Seuss writing that for Northland Church many years ago. That phrase, your mountain is waiting, just brought a smile because of that graphic. 
this whole notion of life-giving generosity and seeing that graphic. What is our mountain? Our mountain's been summarized by this vision that we believe God's entrusted to us for this season, building on that foundation of the previous seasons. That vision is engaging men and women, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, engaging boys and girls to be fully alive in Jesus. That's, it's, it's saturated with what the early church was all about, which was one of the things that makes it so exciting. Acts chapter 5, verse 20, the angel broke the disciples out of prison. They'd been in prison for preaching the gospel. He broke them out and he said, hey, get back out there, go into the temple courts and tell the people all about this, not new religion, but this new life. There's heart-beating life and lung-breathing life, as we talked about over our series in August and September, and we'll keep talking about this new vision, keep talking about the implications of it. But it's not just lung-breathing and heart-beating life that's a gift from God, it's the life of the gospel. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, not have a new religion, but have life, restoring us to the original trajectory we're made for. It's the life of God. So that's our mountain. And it's going to be a journey. It already is. We've already started. It's a journey. It's an adventurous journey. It's an adventurous journey of giving life away to other people, to one another. And that path has a number of trail stops on it, but I guarantee you, one of the ingredients of this trail is we are scaling this mountain of this vision together and pursuing God's calling for us will involve what you see on the screen there, life-giving generosity. It will be an adventure of grace. The life-giving generosity, when I say life-giving, I'm referring to life-giving to you personally as we engage in generosity, to us together as a community, to our church, but also to our city and to this nation. In fact, this, and this is not something new to Northland. This is something we've been doing for years, and we're just taking it to the, the, the next level. But it just happened these past couple of weeks. The, our disaster response team was up in the panhandle at Mariana practicing life-giving generosity. We want to give you an update of that, so take a look. Hurricane Michael, wow. I don't think anybody realized how much it would be devastating to the area. And I really didn't expect Hurricane Michael to be so far inland, and I don't think the town did either. Mariana, you know, maybe is not as prepared as Panama City or Mexico City where they knew it was coming. It's a little more difficult. So we were looking for an area where all the other places weren't going to, a smaller town that sometimes gets forgotten. Our efforts here in Mariana are food prep. We're feeding anywhere from three, 300 to last night was 650. Cleanup, we're going into the neighborhoods and around the city and helping to do cleanup, cutting down of trees. We're also here for emotional and spiritual support for the families as they come in to feed and to talk with them and give them a chance to uh, just talk about their feelings. So we were watching TV and stuff and, and the wind started blowing and, and we stayed in there. The winds got worse and worse and it rained harder and then the plate glass windows started bursting and falling. So we moved down to the bottom floor 
and got in a little closet under the stairwell with 10 of our dogs. We couldn't find one of them. We couldn't find the cat. And after a while, water started seeping in between the walls. I was just afraid we were going to be trapped in a closet. We were going to be those people that were like <laughs> dug out after like two weeks. You feel so helpless. The wind blowing, you know, you hear the thundering, you hear the lightning. I mean, it's raining, it's pouring. You feel completely helpless. Trees on top of pine trees like toothpicks. And I knew then, I said, Lord, you know what? We're going to make it through it or we're going to die together right here. Our house now is unlivable. The whole front of the house where our living room used to be is just gone. It's all collapsed in. It's open, completely exposed to the outside. Helping people out makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Actually, it makes you feel good um, by, you know, giving back to, to people, you know, um, people we don't even know. So God only knows what the purpose is, and, you know, I know that there is a purpose in community, so why not reach out and help somebody, you know? It makes me hopeful that there are people who are out there and willing to help others. We're just sort of the type of town and people who don't like to ask for help and so and we're also small enough that we tend to get looked over occasionally so it's we're very thankful that someone's here to help us and you know even though you can't be here everyone that has contributed has donated money donated food we appreciate it so much thank you for your generosity I mean, we may never meet, we may never call one another. I thank Northland for being here, the hot meals, the water, the warm spirit, money that's been donated to us here, because with people like you, we never could have made it. It's been so much generosity that God is sending from the north, south, east, and west. Even though we went through that hurricane, and a lot of us lost most of what we had. But the generosity I see is love. And we have experienced a little heaven on earth. That is awesome. And those aren't the staff, those are, those are you that took a, a week, couple of weeks of their, 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 their lives, their vacation time to go up and give away. But it was also you in terms of your generosity financially and, and providing some of the materials. And as I was looking at that video, a passage of scripture I thought of is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It starts with verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So you're a new creature when you're in Christ. You've come alive. You who are dead in your transgressions and sins. As we looked at a few weeks ago from Ephesians 2. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, reconciled means to be uh, restored in relationship, to make friends again. And it's what Jesus said is at the essence of this life of the gospel. In John 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. He prayed that. Father, that they may know you and the one whom you've sent. So it's this restoration of the relationship with him that gives us life and starts changing the way we do our Mondays and our Wednesdays and our Fridays and all the time in between. So he says that God 
was reconciled, he reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there you go. It's not just about what God does in me. He then entrusts something to me. He says, I've restored you in a relationship. Now I want you to, to carry on, to carry this message on. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal, and I want you to read those next two words, everybody. Here we go. Through us. Try it again. Through us. And I'm going to give you one more chance. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. If we can get that, if we can get that, uh, that, uh, that we see ourselves as conduits of who He is, we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then a powerful statement, verse 1 of chapter 6. But Paul didn't write in chapters and verses. He didn't take a lunch break. This is right in the same theme when he's writing, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, there are several things I want you to pick up from that. One, what is grace? Grace is, I mean, somebody said that G-R-A-C-E, you could say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, lavished on us, which is true. It's a great definition. Let me expand that a little bit. Grace is God giving to us not what we deserve, but what we need. And he does it abundantly. He does it lavishly. Now, the second thing I want you to see in that text, what were the two words that you said out loud? Through us. Anybody here ever heard of plumbing theology? If you've been at North Lane length of time, you've learned the difference between a pipe and a bucket. And God calls us not to be buckets, but pipes of what he pours into us. Now, religious communities can easily become buckets. All this stuff about how much God loves us, we take it, we absorb it. But if we're not giving it away, it becomes a, a, a rotting relic of religiosity. We get these words, grace is just a word to some people. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a symphony to which I dance and share with other people. And so this whole notion of being a pipe every day, choosing to be a pipe instead of a bucket of what God is pouring into my life in terms of His, His, His gracious provision for me spiritually, materially, financially, relationally, circumstantially. What He's doing in my life, I give away. That's all underneath the banner of His grace. But here's the third thing I want you to notice from that text, and it's this. It's, it's a sobering statement. He says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What's he referring to there? He's saying, he's done all this in you. And if you refuse to let what he's doing in you flow through you to other people, that grace becomes just a religious word, and it's in vain. It's one of these tender parts of my heart regarding where Northland is right now in our journey. Oh God, you have lavished what we were just singing about. This is extravagant love of God where he is. He's chased us down. May that not be in vain. May we take that love and then start giving it away. May we take that grace and be channels and conduits and pipes of it. Now the next time Paul brings up grace, as a few paragraphs later, the beginning of chapter 8, remember he didn't write in chapters and verses, but here we go, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, and I want you to know what's on the back of my mind 
in the back of my mind as I'm reading this. It's from that statement at the beginning of chapter 6 where he says, I, I, I pray that you will not receive God's grace in vain. I urge you. What Dr. Seuss say? On and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. One of the greatest problems that we will encounter on this, this hike is receiving His grace in vain, becoming buckets instead of pipes. So let's see how we can prevent that from happening. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. We want you to know about the grace that He's given them. Paul was taking up an offering in a lot of churches because not a hurricane in Jerusalem, but it was an economic crisis. And he was encouraging people, let's, let's be gracious the way God's been gracious to us. He keeps going. Verse 2, now the Macedonian churches, they were doing an amazing thing. What they were giving in terms of their time, their abilities, and their finances was astounding, and it was blessing the Jerusalem church. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, verse 2, 2 Corinthians 8, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I want you to stare at that for a minute, and there are two words I want you to look at. Overflowing next to the bottom, overflowing joy. The word overflowing, then right underneath that, the phrase welled up. Those two words have the same, are, are the, the Greek word behind them is the same. The Greek word is perisuo. And perisuo is a word that you see several times in, in, in unique places in Scripture. For example, Jesus in John 10.10, 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Guess what the Greek word behind that to the full is? Perisuo. In Ephesians chapter 1, we were told that the grace that God has lavished on us, in verse 7 and 8 of Ephesians 1, He's lavished it on us. The word lavish, guess what the Greek word is behind that? Bersuo. So there's something going on, a connection of God's lavishness, His extravagance towards us, and then these guys were manifesting something to other people in, in lavish fashion as pipes, not buckets. Now go back to the text. Verse 2 is 2 Corinthians 8. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing, their perisuo joy, and their extreme poverty, perisuo welled up in rich generosity, just a lavishness, for I test an extravagance, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. Expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, this grace is talked about in the context of giving, and it's, yes, regarding their abilities and their time, but primarily this is referring to their finances. That's right now, a lot of you are getting really nervous, thinking, oh man, I didn't look at the topic for today. What am I doing here? I, he's about to lock the doors and take an offering and not let us out, and that's true. If we don't get the right amount, we're going to take another offering, and then we'll, no, just relax. 
Let's let the Holy Spirit speak health into us. Keep going. Verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you. You know what? And I would say the same thing. Not commanding you, but I want to test, he says, the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that grace that we were just singing about, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's what I want you to grasp from that. And it's a statement that if you and I grasp it, it'll revolutionize our Mondays, our Tuesdays, our Thursdays, and all days in between. And it's this, if I can understand that extravagant, if when I'm experiencing extravagant generosity, to experience it, to receive it, it will lead to, when I experience extravagant grace, it will lead to extravagant generosity. When I experience the lavish, extravagant grace of God, if I've really experienced it, it's going to manifest itself in extravagant generosity to others. As I receive it as a pipe, I'm giving it away to others. And if if there is not generosity going on in terms of my time, my ability, and my finances to the people around me, I'm not really getting the lavish love of God. I don't know if you noticed how the temperature felt a little. Anybody here look at a thermometer this morning saying, I don't know what this is, but this is, oh, well, actually, I said, I don't know what this is, but it's awesome. Some of you were freezing to death. You got your down jackets on and so forth. But I love the temperature. So I checked out the temperature. What, what does a thermometer do? The thermometer tells us what the climate is. It tells us the temperature of the climate. Here's the deal. If you would like to know what is the temperature of my relationship with Jesus? What's my, the temperature of my engagement with the gospel? My giving, my financial attitudes serve as a thermometer reading. Now, I realize this whole notion of giving and finances when it comes in a ch- up in a church, people get really weird, and for good reason, because of the abuse that happens in religious circles. I've turned the same TV programs on that some of you have. Uh, in the middle of the night, those cable TV things, you got some wackos that are saying, hey, I need, you need to give. God wants you to give because I, an- I need another jet. I need another helicopter. Need this. Need that. And, and the abuse... that's occurred is grievous. And here's how some churches and pastors are tempted to react to that. Because of the abuse out there and the cynicism that produces in people, let's not talk about it at all. If I were to do that, I'd be disobedient before God. If I were to cower and say, man, because they're going to be suspicious of motives, I'm going to cower back. I can't do that. There is no way, no way that we can respond to this vision that God has entrusted to us without getting this notion of generosity. And some of you are going to be suspicious of my mother and say, well, you're just wanting me to give more to, to, to Northland. Uh, that or some other church or some other ministry. If you're suspicious of my motives, give to another ministry. I know there are some of our leaders who are saying, no, don't say that, but I'm saying that. It's a kingdom orientation. Now, if we don't get this as his people, guaranteed this vision will not happen. 
It's a deep burden. We've got a huge, huge kind of valley to climb out of. But it's not because of that. What am I going to do? Are we going to wait until that's all taken care of to teach what the Scriptures say? I believe that generosity is absolutely necessary for us to grasp and seize this vision God's given us to us. So that path on the mountain will involve generosity as well as a number of other things. So we're going to spend a few weeks on generosity. It's like 33 weeks. It'll be all right. Just kidding. I am hoping that you will trust me and let's just look at the Word. Just look and see what the Scriptures say. I'm really curious how many of you will come back next week. But I think more of you than you think. Because we start seeing, you know what? This whole notion of finances is not off to the side. It's central to my walk with God. It serves as a thermometer reading. Let's go back through this text. I'll show you what I mean. There are four indicators. There are plenty more, but here are four temperature readings. Here's the first one. My giving, my financial posture, my generosity will provide a temperature reading of the extent of my submission to Jesus. Many of you are followers of Jesus already. You, you say, I, I want to be submitted to Jesus, because we know that that's what Scripture says. And submission leads to liberation and not suffocation. It leads to life, that life with a capital L, that life of the gospel. Well, how do I know if I'm really submitted? There are a number of indicators, but one is my giving. Go back to the text, verse 5. And they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Uh, that, that passage moves me. Do you, do you understand? They weren't giving as their church expected, as the leaders expected. They went to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord and, and keeping with God's will. Am I submitted to Him? This will liberate you. When it comes to the finances and putting aside all the abuses out there and all the manipulation and everything out, let's look to Him. What does He say? What is God's will? Am I submitted to the will of God or not? Are you submitted to the will of God or not? You want a temperature reading of that? A primary indicator is my giving, my giving habits and patterns. You're saying, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm, my, my relationship with Jesus is a spiritual thing. It has, institutional religion has turned it into something financial. Let me tell you this, Jesus had a number of hot buttons. One of his supreme hot buttons was finances and possessions. In the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, one out of every six verses is related to money and possessions. Of Jesus' 29 parables, 16 of them were related to money and possessions. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. Why? Because he knew the power, the power that money has. Anybody here know what state the Mega Millions winner lives in? A lot of people do. There's something alluring about waking up and being a billionaire. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money is not an evil thing. It's the root of a lot of evil postures. But money, though, is a primary, it's one of the quickest 
most visible indicators of whether I'm submitted to Jesus. One of the most awful parts of religious history. I'm not even going to say the history of Christianity because it wasn't biblical Christianity. It was a, 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 an awful religiosity was the Crusades. Back in the 12th century from, from Europe, they were sending these, uh, these men on holy wars and for relics down in the, the Holy Land, and they would hire these mercenaries, soldiers, professional soldiers. Dressed like knights, they have their armor, their swords, their shields and all. And before they went, because this is a, a quote, holy thing, they would do a religious ceremony and they would have these, these mercenaries. Remember, I think I first heard this from Howard Dayton, who's part of our family here at Northland, where they, these guys would bow and they would baptize them with holy water. But when they did that, when they brought out the, the baptismal font and pitcher and would begin to pour it over them, these mercenaries would hold their, their sword out from underneath the flow of that holy water. Why? What were they saying? They were saying, you know what, you, yeah, you can do all this religious stuff to, to all of me with one exception. My sword is mine. I will do with my sword what I want. And it was awful stuff. I have a huge temptation in my life, and so do you, to say, Jesus, you can have all of me except for this. My wallet is my own. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll do a quiet time every now and then, go to church when it's convenient. At least there's one, there's not a football game, and uh, I'll, I'll do this, do that. But my money, my money's mine. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says, Remember the Lord your God. For it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Said, I earned my money. How did I earn it with the abilities that I, God's given me? Where did I get those abilities? It's his. And it's one of the most liberating things to start saying, you know what? All I've got is God's. And if I want to know, am I submitted to Jesus or not? If I'm going to look at the climate, the temperature reading of my, my walk with Jesus, this temperature reading, my giving, reveals the extent of my submission. I can't get around my giving in terms of how to read my submission. Here's the second temperature reading. It's not only if I want to know the extent of my submission, if I want to know the progress of my maturity. Anybody here want to be mature in their walk with Christ? I think we all do if we're followers of Jesus. Well, how can I gauge my maturity? There are a number of things. A lot of people say, well, church attendance, and um, am I, do I have a Bible? Is it on the coffee table? Especially if the pastor comes by, uh, is it uh, this and that? We've got all these things about maturity. You know what? A primary indicator of maturity is my giving. Go back to the text. Let's look at it. Look at verse 6. We were just in verse 5 of, of 2 Corinthians 8, now we're in verse 6 and 7. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And again, remember, this whole notion of giving is an act of grace. God has lavished his love on me, not in a manner that I deserve, but in a manner that I need it. He says, you do that in the lives of people around you. 
But just as you excel in everything, that word excel, very suo, lavish. Just you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. Did you see that list? It's a big five. Faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love. You say, man, if I've got all of those, I'm mature. He says, not so fast. Make sure you add a six to the list. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Make sure you excel in this grace of giving. Make sure that you see that your giving is part of your maturity reading. How mature am I? It's not just my faith and my knowledge, my speech, my earnestness. It's my posture towards finances, as well as my time, as well as my abilities. How mature is the church in America? Well, we're to be salt and light in this culture. How's that going for us in terms of our influence? A loving, life-giving influence. What's the root of that? There's some crises. We live in a materialistic culture that seeps into church. And there, there is less giving. The church today in America gives less per capita, per person, than the church did, than Christians did during the Great Depression. We have more, we're giving less. We're being influenced more by our culture than the materialism of our culture than our understanding that wealth is God's. 86% to, uh, I think of the, the, the diagram that I, I saw, 86.4% of finances given into ministries and churches are given by 20% of Christians. Over half don't give anything anywhere. And it, it, it grieves me because what that means is there, there's been a, a stoppage and a bucket Mentality has been formed, and therefore stagnation begins to enter into our, our, our walk with Jesus. And this whole understanding of how mature am I? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, hey, Tim, listen. As you're working with people, as you're pastoring, command those who are rich in this present world. And by the way, statistically, there's great wealth here. I mean, we're amongst the top you know, single-digit percentage in the, in the world here in America. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Gosh, don't we do that? Yeah, I trust Jesus, but also my, my pocketbook. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up for themselves treasure, treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So, if I'm going to take hold of the life, so we're engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. If I'm taking hold of that life, it will involve my generosity. And I, you, over and over, you see people would say, in fact, I read an article this past week by Philip Yancey on money. I hadn't read in a number of, of years. And he said, one of the biggest factors about generosity is not what it does for people around me, but what it does for me. It liberates me up. It kind of, it, it pries the, the talons of the money monster away 
from me. It is indicative. It's part, so the, if I'm going to take hold of the life of the gospel, it will involve my generosity. If I'm going to be mature, if I want a maturity there, it's going to be evidenced in my giving. Here's a fascinating text in Mark chapter 12, something that Jesus did. Said he positioned himself in the temple court, Mark 12 verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. You see that? So in the temple courts, there were these places where people could contribute to the monies for the temple, for the ministry of the temple, for uh, helping the poor, etc. The equivalent here at Northland would be our kiosks for credit cards out in the, the lobby or our cash boxes. And this is so, we say, you know, this, the whole money, I don't want God to have anything to do with that. Jesus sat down, and it's like he pulled up a chair, and he sat it right next to the temple, to the kiosk. He said, all right, let's see here. Does she get it? Does he get it? Do they really get how lavishly I want to love them? Do they get this principle of being a pipe instead of a bucket that as they sow, they'll reap? Do they get it? Or do we want Jesus to stay away from that? Hmm. It's a temperature reading of a, a third. It's not just, I'm wondering how the extent of my submission. What's the reading of that? My giving will tell me that. I'm wondering about the progress of my maturity. My giving will give me the temperature of that. Here's the third one. It, how about my love? The authenticity of my love, my giving gives a thermometer reading of that. And it's stuff with, that, if I say I love you, okay, I can get you a Hallmark card. But you and I both know that might not be love. Go back to the text, verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And down at verse 24, I didn't read that to you guys earlier. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. You guys know the, the adage, hurt people hurt people? You ever heard that? Loved people love people. And when I start getting this love of God that we were just singing about, I don't want to keep it to myself. I want to give it away. And when I give love away, I give it away in tangible ways. Yes, verbally, that's important. But more than that, it's actions. First John chapter 2, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. So God loving us is seen in our actions. Down the next chapter in First John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. How? because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So if we're, be, if we're engaging with one another, being fully alive in Jesus, it'll involve our love, our relationships, the community that we're experiencing. And that love will manifest itself in generosity. Here we go, 1 John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Just three verses later. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
Dear children, let us not love just with words or tongue, but with action and truth. That is what I loved about what we saw in that video in terms of what we were doing in the lives of people in Mariana. What would have happened if we had sent a van up there with a little loudspeaker and just rolled around and said, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and then drove back? But instead, there was something tangible. It involved finances and material help and giving them help, and that's due to your generosity. So, big old high five. Don't know how to give a thousand people a high five at once, but there you go. But may God continue to work in life. So here, let me give you a last thermometer reading that giving does in my life. It provides a, a, a temperature reading of the extent of my submission and the progress of my maturity and the authenticity of my love. Is it really real? The love that God gives me, I'm giving to others. But here's the fourth one, the depth of my gratitude. My giving will reveal the depth of my gratitude. We can say, yeah, I'm really thankful for what Jesus has done in my life. That is shown through my giving. Go back to the text, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. That has everything about it in terms of us being blown away by the love of Jesus. That'll be seen in my gratitude, and my gratitude is evidenced in my generosity. Generosity is fueled by a sense of, hey, I'm just so grateful for what God has done in my life. I want to do that in the lives of other people. This weekend, there's a group of people up in Seattle that are celebrating generosity. It's through a ministry called Generous Giving that a few of our people are involved in. Our own John Cortinas, who will be teaching during this series here in a couple of weeks, he, he's up there. And I'm going to say it again. These people are getting together to celebrate what generosity and unleashes in their lives and journeys. And I've, every one of them would say, if only people can get it. There's some of them have come out of a situation where they were hoarding, 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 and all of a sudden, I'm going to start unleashing and what God has done in their lives. And a lot of times it begins by saying, God, I'm going to grapple wholeheartedly with what you've done in my journey. And then that unleashes generosity. You guys know Zacchaeus? Anybody here remember a little song, Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was… Do, do we still sing that? A wee little man? A wee little man. Is, it, is, is that politically incorrect now? Can we sing that? I mean, it, we're told that he was a shorter guy. He was a tax collector. He was wealthy. It was all about money. Verse 8 of Luke 19, it's Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now. So this is once he realized the lavish love of God, he says, I, give, I want to give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. So his gratitude was evidenced in his generosity. Back in 1815, the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo. Famous battle. There have been some biographies of Wellington over the years, but uh, recently, the most recent biography to come out was by a biographer who, because there were a number of things not known about the Duke of Wellington. This biographer 
used some records that had been dis- discovered, and it, they were his financial ledger books, the Duke of Wellington's financial ledger books, basically his checkbook. You younger folks, checkbooks are a piece of paper that talk about, you know, the expenditures that you've made. And this biographer wrote his biography of of the Duke of Wellington based on what he saw in his financial records. I had a mentor many years ago said, show me a person's checkbook receipts and I'll show you where their heart is. And I see that about the Duke of Wellington and think, okay, if somebody were to write a biography of me based on my financial records, would the grace of the gospel come out? Would my grasp and gratitude for the life of the gospel be evidenced? Would generosity be seen? It's a liberating thing. Let's trust Him together to let Him speak in to our lives and our journey. And those of you who've been really nervous that we're about to do an offering, now can relax because I'm about to close in prayer. And then we're going to make a proclamation of how worthy Jesus is, and then I'll give you the good word. Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, I, I just, I, I ask fervently that you would grant us an open heart, open palms to trust you and your word regarding what you say about being generous. May that be true of us as individuals, but also true with us as a church. We've been doing it over the years. May we keep doing it and do it in even, even greater fashion. Thank you for the privilege to journey together. I, you know what you've, you've, you've uh, put your finger on in my own heart as I'm talking about generosity. May I submit before you. May I become more mature. May I become more loving in an authentic way. May I I become even more grateful. And may that be seen in the cadence of my journey. And I pray that for my, my friends. We all thank you for the worth of who you are. And so now enable us to proclaim that worth before we leave this place in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. So let's stand together and let's proclaim the worthiness of his name. Then I'll give you the good word.